Blog Talk Radio. Talk listeners, Chuck Moore speaks Monday through Friday, noon to 2 p.m. Uh, here we are in our first hour. Second hour, of course, was syndicated on Cyber Station USA Radio Network and our affiliates, uh, those being WWPRAM in Tampa Bay, Florida, and KSKQFM in Ashland, Oregon. You're welcome to join the conversation, 213-943-3434. I'm sorry. I should give out the right number. The number is 347-327-9649. That number again is 347-327-9849. I'll be all right. <laughs> uh, this, uh, we've got a pretty good show coming up today. I've got in the first hour Rick Robinson is the author of Writ of Mandamus, um, a fictional account. Uh, he is um, examining, he's a writer, a blogger, he's examining the um, the so-called swing vote in the swing states right now. He's uh, been in Ohio and Kentucky getting a sort of a handle on the pulse of people, what they're thinking, uh, how they'll be voting coming up uh, in less than five weeks before Election Day. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing his observations. In the second hour, we'll be joined by my old friend uh, Albert Navarra the author of Elements of Constitutional Law. Albert is a, uh, an expert on the Supreme Court and their various uh, rulings. We're going to intersect and take a look at the First Amendment and how it relates to this recent uh, business of an anti-Muslim offensive film that was made by private parties somewhere in the United States. Whether or not that's constitutional, of course I think it is, but we'll talk about um, the possible case regarding that. I also want to ask... Uh, Albert, about a recent ruling in the state of Wisconsin with regard to uh, Scott Walker's um, rulings on uh, closed shop and um, collective bargaining so-called rights for public employees. So we'll be getting into that in the second hour, the syndicated hour. Meanwhile, I have a blog up. I just wrote it literally hot off the press here um, on my blog site, Chuck Moore Speaks or A Wig Manifesto. And I think that I'm going to take the opportunity quickly to read it because I think I'm onto something here. I'm kind of excited about this one. I'm hoping that this one uh, results in some thinking and some talk and some uh, perhaps some interviews and uh, some general observations. The uh, title is What Mitt Romney Can Learn from Richard Nixon. I'm just going to read it, so check this out. In 1969, at the height of the student protest against the Vietnam War, President Nixon held a private conversation with the wife of an American serviceman while he was visiting the Pentagon. The discourse was overheard by a reporter and was recounted in Before the Fall, an insider's view of, pre, of the pre-Watergate White House by William Sapphire. Nixon expressed how much he admired men like the woman's husband. Quote, I have seen them. They are the greatest. You see these bums, you know, blowing up the campuses. Listen. The boys that are on the college campuses today are the luckiest people in the world. 
going to the greatest universities, and here they are burning up the books. Then out there in Vietnam, we have kids who are just doing their duty, and I have seen them. They stand tall, and they are proud, unquote. The liberal media, which hated Nixon going back to the late 1940s when he played a key role in exposing one of their own, FDR's former Undersecretary of State Alger Hiss as an agent of Stalin, responded with the same ferocity and distortion that Mitt Romney is experiencing today. The media reported that Nixon had called all American college students bums. It should be noted that the tape of Romney's speaking at the House Party fundraiser, the one that the media is frantically claiming to be a, quote, smoking gun, to use a Watergate metaphor, was altered as one or two minutes of the video of Romney were either deleted or just missing. And while we're on the Nixon metaphors, this reminds me of the missing minutes in the Watergate tapes that contributed to Nixon's resignation. The central message here is that Nixon contrasted the average working American, what he called the silent majority, hard-working, good, patriotic people, with the left-wing, elitist, spoiled campus liberal protesters burning their comfortable colleges while getting all warm and fuzzy over Ho, Ho, Ho Chi Minh. These same types today, Obama's core supporters, are not affected by the most rampant unemployment since World War II. They don't care about the increase in poverty because many of them, receiving public benefits, want the gravy train to keep rolling along. Sapphire wrote that shortly after the media flap over Nixon's comments, May 7, 1969, construction workers stormed New York City Hall and beat up college student protesters occupying the building. Thus, the hard hats, working people, the silent majority, began to react to the elitist and out-of-touch college students. The reaction and the rejection of the demented utopian ideals of the parlor pink silver spoon students continued to grow until the 1972 election. Nixon won the biggest landslide in history against his anti-war opponent, George McGovern, who carried only one state, Massachusetts. Romney needs to stay real and to continue to point out the hypocrites who could care less about the plight of working people, about the silent majority. The more vicious the left-wing media becomes, the more the majority grew. Became, the more that majority grew. All right, so I I could do a little work there in the last sentence, but uh, that's my column for today up on my blog site. You're welcome to view that. That is what Mitt Romney can learn from Richard Nixon. I'll do a couple of little edits later on after the program, but uh, I'm pretty. I, I think that I've hit. I've hit. Some, I've hit on something here. I suppose we shall see. Uh, we're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, I'll introduce my guest. You're listening to Chuck Moore speaks. Please stay tuned. Seven three two seven nine eight four nine is the number if you'd like to join us. 
347-327-9849, or you can email us at number 4 at gmail.com, and we'll read your email over the air. We're now joined by Rick Robinson. He's the author of Writ of Mandamus. He is uh, a blogger. He's a reporter. He's uh, writing from uh, the so-called swing states. He's in Ohio and uh, Kentucky. Rick, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Chuck, great to be with you. How are things uh, going up in Boston these days? Well, I'm glad you asked. Last night we had the debate between um, Scott Brown and um, and Hiawatha Warren, and um, <laughs> I thought that uh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah, right, and I thought that Brown conducted himself very well. You know, he kind of nailed it. Um, I, you know, I, I'm not going to deny. I mean, I'm I'm not. I have no problem mentioning that I sent him some information, and I I, I know I haven't. I kind of know uh, Scott Brown. Uh, he nailed it in terms of her utter hypocrisy. She's you know, she's there railing and waving a fist in the air about big corporations, but there she was working for Travelers Insurance and getting a quarter of a million dollars, screwing people who had asbestos cancer out of their benefits. I well, mean, insurance insurance companies are not big business. They're they're there for the people. You know that. Oh yes, especially the health insurance companies. Right there, she is screaming about mortgages and bank reform. She's flipping mortgages in Oklahoma City. That's how she made her money. And she's talking about she she got on about uh, reforming colleges and college loans and why colleges are so expensive. Uh, Scott turned around and said, "Yes, I guess it is, given the fact that both you and your husband are getting seven hundred fifty thousand dollars a year from Harvard, and you teach one class, and you you know they they give you housing. Gee, I wonder why college is so expensive. Sounds like a palace. It's a good gig if you can find it. Uh, by the way, if those, <laughs> if those spots come open up there, I want you to let them know I am available." Well, yeah, really. I, but, of course, you have to check off a box saying you're a minority, like Liz Warren did, in order to be, get tenure. <laughs> but but she, won't release, she won't release that personnel information, even though we've all asked her for that. Uh, Rick, you're, you're traveling around uh, in Ohio. You're, you're taking – you know, Ohio is, as always, it seems, the bellwether state. It really – you know, it represents, in a sense, the whole country. It's both east and west. It's midwest. It's south. It's big city. It's it's uh, rural. It's suburban. What's it, going it is on literally, Ohio is literally the crossroads of a continent. When you take a look at the at the at the diverse nature of of what Ohio is, what is interesting about Ohio right now is that I live in Kentucky, right on the northernmost tip, uh, right when you drive over into Cincinnati. And so my television, my radio that I have, it it comes out of Cincinnati. And I am absolutely bombarded on a daily basis with all the messages. I drive down the other day to Lexington, Kentucky, which is in the heart of Kentucky. You wouldn't even know there's a race going on there. You have to remember, Kentucky is a state where uh, Obama nearly got beat by undecided in uh, in the Democratic primary. Now, correct me so, if I'm wrong, Rick, but also nearby West Virginia, was not uh, Obama almost beaten by a, a convicted felon who's in prison in Oklahoma? Yes, yes, and both of those numbers and both of those numbers, coal plays a very important issue uh, uh, in in bringing those numbers to where they are. But you know, I get bombarded with these images, so I was trying to figure out. You know, I mean, I drive one day into Kentucky and the heart of Kentucky, and they don't know a race is going on. I drive to Columbus the next day where, where you're just bombarded with things. There's so many candidates there. I, I literally I stopped at a gas station uh, to get gas, and Joe Biden came down to check my tire pressure. I mean, that's how <laughs> often they're here. Okay. Right. So, 
you sit there and you do that and, and you try and figure out then why is anybody, how can anybody possibly be undecided with all the messages that are being sent around here? And that's what we were looking for on Tuesday. I was with a couple of guys from Fox News uh, who was out there, Mike Tobin. And mm-hmm. we went wandering around with our with our latest Zogby poll on uh, John Zogby had just issued a poll on Ohio, seeing if we could find what uh, what was out there. Now the interesting thing about Zogby's poll is that Zogby's poll, you know, a lot of people say "ugh" when they hear Zogby poll when they hear polls, right. but the fact of the matter is they're usually pretty accurate. In this case, Zogby said uh, that the undecided voters are white females under. 35, making less than $75,000 a year and living primarily in Cincinnati. And unmarried. And we, and, well, uh, actually, we didn't have that. I didn't have that okay. uh, that breakdown. But mm-hmm. as, we walked, as we walked around greater Cincinnati, around Fountain Square, around to the, to the local deli, to a job fair, the only people we could find who were undecided were remarkably single white females, working class, <laughs> uh, you know, in Cincinnati, so it was it was kind of interesting to see how precise uh, Zog, John Zogby's poll was, wow. and it was really interesting. To, and, and the thing that I came away with with this, Chuck, is that is that the campaign. What I've decided now is the campaign isn't about me, and it's not about you, because all of these messages that are, that are being sent out across the country right now are messages that are being sent to these young ladies uh, who I met yesterday. While right. walking around Greater Cincinnati, so that's, then that's who this what election is about. To. That's who they're. Yep. That's who they're gearing. That's who all the convention speeches were geared at. That's who all the all the messages are geared at. And you and I could go ahead and vote today because they aren't going to tell us anything new. Well, let's just talk about what what they are saying on that because I think that uh, back in uh, June of this year. The Obama campaign, or someone in it, released this so-called war on women uh, that was cooked up by Celinda Lake, who is, in, who is a PR person who works over here at Fenton Communications, a very left-wing uh, PR firm in, in Providence, Rhode Island. I haven't had some dealings with them a few years ago. And uh, well, the I, idea I was tell- to – yeah. I can, I can tell you it's working because that's exactly what – as we talk to these women, that's exactly what is happening – is there is there balancing right now between what they think is their social obligation versus what they think there is their economic obligation to themselves? And and as you talk to them and you talk to them from again from a reporter, not an advocate standpoint, that's what you're getting, and that's what you hear from from uh, 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 from these women is that they're they're trying to balance which one is most important to them right now. Well, and I apologize look, I for the noise that... in the background. I'm I'm at a I'm at an outside cafe right now as a motorcycle goes rambling by i apologize no that's quite all right um i think that the from what i understand regarding polling the numbers have not changed that much in that the democrats do have an advantage with young women probably because of roe versus wade and yet they and that case continued but but they didn't get much of a bump from the war against women i mean the same advantage which existed before the war against women so-called is still there, or do you think that they've actually picked up steam? Well, I think I think that's what the, the decision process is going through right now. I don't know whether it's you know we don't when we go out and do the reporting side of this, we don't actually go in and try and advocate a position one way or the other. So it's hard to really see that none of them could really tell us what was going to finally make up their mind. I guess that was that's the interesting mm-hmm. thing. 
is that nobody could come up with that final number of, oh, yeah, and by the way, if I heard this, this would sway me. And I, so I think this, this 17% that you have of, of independent voters in Ohio, that they're looking at that, that's what's going to be the final, the final issue here. You know, I, I mean, I think you're onto something in that I know I'm obviously operating in the People's Republic of Massachusetts, but um, I was listening to a very liberal woman talk show host. Home of the Dropkick Murphys, though. What's that? Home of the Dropkick Murphys. So <laughs> I'm okay, great, so I'm okay yeah. with that. No, it's a great band. Um, the um, this a woman uh, radio talk show host, Marjorie Egan. I don't mind mentioning who it is. She was going after uh, Paul Ryan as being this Neanderthal, you know, right-wing fanatic who wants to put women, you know, into, uh, you know, pregnant and barefoot. And just the, the, the emotion coming out of her, it was really something that um, I felt troubled by, not because of, of whether it's true, which it's not, but just that this is what women are thinking. I mean, this is... Uh, you know this kind of emotion that uh, she was she was expressing is out there. What I did find, and then I, I apologize, I'm going to have to jump to another interview here in just a second. But yep. what we did find was that the the outrageous ads are not what's swaying them. These are rational thinking women who are trying to think through the whole thing, and they're trying to push aside the irrational ads that are being and the irrational messages that are being thrown at them to find the rational messages. I found that as one of the interesting things that came out of what we found yesterday. Well, you know, I, I hope that as the election gets closer and if they're still undecided, they're going to realize that every president, every Republican president has been pro-life. It doesn't mean that we're going to get rid of Roe versus Wade. You know, and certainly Mitt Romney is pretty moderate on that one. Uh, you know, just uh, this kind of, uh, you know, he's not a, um, a movement conservative when it comes you're to gonna wanna, You're going to want to break with me because there are now fire trucks headed my way. So okay. you're going to have a very, you're going to have a very noisy telephone in about in about 30 seconds. So well, Rick, great to be with you. Can, I hope we can talk again. Where can people read your uh, materials? Uh, they can go to my website at author Rick Robinson. They can find my books at uh, Amazon.com, and uh, of course, always pick up things at the Daily Caller. Excellent. Rick, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. We're going to take a brief break. You're listening to Chuck Moore Speaks. Uh, you're certainly welcome to join the program, 347-327-9849. 347-327-9849. Please stay tuned. Back three four seven three two seven nine eight four nine is the number three four seven three two seven nine eight four nine, or you can email me at Chuck Morse number four at gmail dot com. Rick Robinson is a uh, he's out there in uh, I think he said in Cincinnati, checking out the uh, street so to speak, and uh, I guess it as he says it's coming down to. Um, Women under the age of uh, 30 or 30 and under, probably single is what I've heard, and they're weighing and measuring whether or not they think that uh, Romney Ryan is going to be involved with the so-called war against women versus um, Obama, whom they don't like for a lot of other reasons, mainly the economic issues, 
probably foreign policy, I would hope, issues, especially after this disaster in Libya with the murder of our ambassador and all of the uh, eruptions around the world, anti-American uh, eruptions at em embassies, and, and stuff that's coming out around that. But putting that aside, you know, the cultural, the social issues, the cultural issues around women, that's a real one. You know, I mean, and, and all I can say to that, and I think at the, at the end of the day, um, it will be shown that, um, I don't know, it worries me from, from the standpoint as a conservative myself, as a sort of a libertarian conservative, that um, conservative positions on issues of life are going to be viewed as uh, somehow a war against women. And yet, at the same time, I do understand that issue. You know, I understand it as as because I have women in my own life. I'm married. I've got a daughter. I've got I've got a mother. I've got aunts. You know, I've got uh, women who are friends, and uh, and they have impressed upon me the uh, idea or the principle that abortion has to be legal, and I understand it. And I accept it, um, even though I think that I, like most Americans, male and female, believe that it's immoral and it's it's a barbaric practice. That it is, uh, and I would urge mothers to not murder their fetuses. Uh, you know, but at the same time, I'm not sure that um, it's realistic for the government to outright ban it, because ultimately, at least in the early stages of a pregnancy. You know, a woman could make the argument that it is her body and that the government can't force her to have a pregnancy. Um, I think that on, there are radicals on both sides of the issue. Um, I do understand that Paul Ryan has been associated with some of the more extreme elements in the Republican Party in terms of like a national constitution to ban, I mean, an amendment to the constitution to ban abortion. On the other hand, you've got extremists on the left, too, people like, uh, frankly, President Barack Obama, who, as a state senator in Illinois, voted, was the only one, um, one other person voting for a bill that would have uh, basically uh, put, put a baby born as a result of a botched abortion into a broom closet to die. So, you know, there are people who view abortion as, I mean, we've, I've had people on this program in another incarnation of the program um, on the far left, people who had attended Netroots Nation, who talked about that there should be no shame associated with abortion, there should be no stigma associated with it, that it's nothing more than uh, clipping your toenails. It has no moral content whatsoever. And I think that the vast majority of Americans on this issue are like me. They understand that abortion should be legal, but they also understand that it is immoral, it is murder, it is murdering the unborn child, and that we should do everything in our power to reduce abortion and to uh, do what former President Clinton at least stated publicly he believed, which was to make sure that abortion was, quote, legal, safe, and rare, unquote. And by the way, in that interview, he was uh, with Hillary Clinton at the time, who chimed in and she said that she believed that abortion was, quote, wrong, unquote. Now, I think most people know that the Clintons are full of you know what. I mean, they don't believe that. You know, I doubt if they believe anything, that, you know, short of um, whatever it takes to get them ahead. But they did say it publicly, and so we have to 
look to that. They said it because they knew that it was a reflection of what the majority of the population thinks and feels. So, you know, I, I hope that women who are coming up today and who are thinking of who they're going to vote for in this coming election, that they will understand that Mitt Romney is not going to ban abortions. He's not going to appoint a Supreme Court judge who would ban abortions. It's just not who he is. You know, he wasn't, that isn't who he was in Massachusetts. When he ran for the Senate the first time against Ted Kennedy, he stated flatly that he was pro-choice. The second time around, when he ran for governor of Massachusetts in 2002 against Shannon O'Brien, who was the, uh, I think she was the attorney general, um, he, uh, he stated that while he was opposed to abortion, he, as the governor of the Commonwealth, would support the laws of the land, which, are, which um, both on a federal and state level are support a woman's right to an abortion. And um, I think that's what Mitt Romney's position would be as president of the United States. Um, he is opposed to abortion, but he's not going to interfere with it. I think his position actually is very much in line with that of the vast majority of Americans, both male and female. And by the way, uh, polling done on the issue of Roe versus Wade and abortion from the time it was first decided in 1973 up until today, generally speaking, the, the breakdown has been that women more than men have tended to be pro-life. So in a sense, in that sense, and at least in the sense of the popular mind, this is not a, a gender issue, even though it actually is, of course, because a woman is the one that has the abortion or not. But uh, in terms of uh, people viewing the issue, it, it transcends gender. It gets into a more fundamental question, which is life and uh, death. And uh, in that sense, it's like the, the death penalty or like any other issue that deals with life and death. These are issues that all governments have to face and should face and uh, that they are fundamental questions. They're not, uh, you know, questions that, that can be easily categorized. So I guess that um, Rick Robinson's note with regard to women, the women's vote, and I think he's right, that's been the sole focus, is, um, is one in which I guess that I could get back to the metaphor of last night's debate between Scott Brown and Hiawatha Elizabeth Warren, um, conducted but very ably by John Keller uh, at WBZ, in which uh, Scott Brown made it quite clear he is pro-choice on abortion. He is not involved with this war against women. And yet um, Elizabeth Warren made the, her point that the, the, the Democratic Party is going to preserve abortion rights and that to vote for Scott Brown as a Republican would mean that the, uh, if the Republicans take over the Senate, then, then they will get rid of abortion rights. Well, you know, it's really not that simple. The, the bottom line is that no matter what anyone says, they're never going to get rid of abortion rights. It's just never going to happen in this country. I don't believe it. I know that there are people out there, I know both women and men, who have said, oh, yes, they will. But the truth is, oh, no, they won't. It's settled law. Uh, states can regulate abortion based on the will of the residents of those states and who they elect as state legislators, but they can't get rid of abortion. 
They cannot stop legal abortion, and they will not stop it. So I don't think that electing Mitt Romney or electing a Republican to both houses of Congress is going to in any way have any real effect on abortion. And let's face it, we have people like Mitt Romney who are who are not really committed to that, even if he says he is. Uh, you know, obviously Mitt Romney has, take, has taken a more conservative position uh, in his run for, for the White House in the same way that perhaps you could say Barack Obama has taken a more liberal position. I mean, that's just, there is some posturing going on there. That's just how the game is played. Um, back to Lizzie Warren last night. Uh, she was this wretched individual, just, you know, absolutely obscene. She stands for everything that I despise in, in politics today, you know, lying through her teeth. You know, right off the bat, uh, Scott brought up the fact that um, she claimed to be a Native American when she's not and that she checked off a box both at Harvard and at UPenn as a Native American, and yet in other applications she did she called herself white um which appear which makes it appear that um that she was using that to get tenure which she got even though she's a mediocre professor she refuses to release her personnel files or any other information that the brown campaign has requested because it would indicate obviously why else why else wouldn't she that she had checked off that box and she stood up there and lied through her teeth when she said, oh, they didn't know about this until well into my career at Harvard. That's that's such a, a load of, of nonsense. And um, I, I don't know if she's going to get away with it. We shall see. But the hypocrisy of it stinks. It's, it's, it's not just this issue of taking advantage of affirmative action and the fact that she took away a position within the context of affirmative action – that would have gone to a Native American, a real one. Uh, but it, it gets into the bigger issue of affirmative action itself and how a left-winger and liberal like Elizabeth Warren is, is, of all people, would be the one who had no problem abusing that system to get ahead. Uh, there are many other examples, as I mentioned to Rick uh, Robinson, the, the business of um, – uh, you know the asbestos cancer. What 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 she did and what uh, Scott Brown brought up very ably was she was hired by this big corporation, one of the largest insurance companies in America, um, that being Travelers Insurance, who was underwriting a company called Johns Mansville, which um, the manufacturing company that dealt with asbestos, uh, to um, ensure that their employees were covered if they got any kind of asbestos illness any illness related to asbestos. Um, Johns Mansville was going bankrupt over the number of claims that were being made by the employees to Travelers Insurance. And by the way, these were claims, these were policies that were paid for out of the employees' paychecks. I mean, this is the company had matching funds, but uh, people who worked at this company had been paying for that, that health insurance for their entire career at that company out of their paychecks. And then when they started to come down with illnesses, including cancers, related to asbestos, they turned to their insurance company, and the insurance company then calls Elizabeth Warren, gives her a quarter of a million dollars to set up this outside fund. Now, what that meant is that the company was held harmless. 
the company had immunity from these suits. In other words, people weren't going to get their medical care paid for. You know, this is, uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren, a champion of Obamacare and the mean, nasty health insurance companies cutting people off who have catastrophic illnesses. Anyway, so so Liz Warren helped uh, help Travelers Insurance set up this so, this fund outside of their company, which would pay people peanuts. And as it turned out, once the fund was set up, Travelers never even bothered to put money in it. I mean, why should they? They were immune at that point. And basically, you know, the ball was dribbled down until eventually a lot of these people are now dead. So Lizzie then sets up this fund to screw people with 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 asbestos cancer. Meanwhile, she was getting 50 she was getting something like um I, I think it was $500 an hour to work for the Obama administration. That's taxpayer money to set up this um consumer credit uh, agency, which by the way was passed through Congress by none other than Scott Brown. Uh when it came time for President Obama to appoint uh someone to lead that agency, he passed over Elizabeth for good reason, I'm sure. I mean, Barack Obama, in his wisdom, you know, had enough sense to not pick her. And then she goes on to, uh, you know, get her tenure at Harvard and now run for Congress against Scott Brown. And she's waving a fist in the air. I'm the champion against corporations. You know, another thing Scott brought up that I thought was quite interesting and, and, and rather, you know, shows the utter hypocrisy and emptiness of Elizabeth Warren as a candidate and as a person was when she brought when she was complaining about the high cost of 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 um of college education you know and what to do about it and we need to get more loans well Scott came back and said you know excuse me Ms Warren but you are getting $750,000 a year you and your husband i don't know if that meant she and her husband combined or if they're getting 750 each that I don't know, but um, for the sake of argument, let's just say she's getting 750 a year from Harvard. She teaches one class. Boy, I wonder how much preparation that takes to teach her one class. Is it once a week? <laughs> what is it? Or once, you know, once every other week? I don't know. She gets subsidized housing, more than subsidized. She's given a house by the university, tax-free, uh, rent-free. And she gets all of these other incredible benefits. Doesn't that tell us something about why yeah, university education is so expensive now, why it costs like $50,000 a year for people to go to Harvard? I mean, and it's not just Harvard, obviously. That's just a, a metaphor for all of them. I mean, these places are like oriental palaces. It's like the top Cappy Palace. In uh, in ancient in the in the Ottoman Empire, I mean these, you know, I'm surprised they don't have people with turbans waving gigantic, uh, you know, fronds and feathers over them. I mean, and they're carried in in a in a gold uh, chaise, in a gold valet or whatever. I mean, this is this is luxury. You know, what a sweet deal. And then she has the nerve to complain about the high cost. Anyways, I I, I don't even think I can want to go on about Elizabeth Warren. I could, you know, we we could talk about how she flipped mortgages and uh, distressed properties and made a ton in real estate while bellyaching about big banks. We could even mention that she uh, got rid of her million or her $100,000 car 
foreign-owned car, made car, when she decided to run for the Senate to get a, a cheap American car so she could look like one of the little people. And uh, I don't, I'm not sure, apparently, that she's even paid her excise tax yet on that car. All I can say is that next time anyone sees Elizabeth Warren out there, they should ask her. They should ask her, Liz, did you pay your excise tax yet? And if the answer is no, they should put her under citizen's arrest. Anyway, we're going to take a brief break. You're listening to Chuck Moore Speaks. I've got uh, Albert Navarra coming up in hour number two, the author of Elements of Constitutional Law. Uh, Albert is an old friend of mine, and we're going to be talking about um, certain uh, legal cases right now. One, uh, the First Amendment issue around um, this uh, anti-Muslim film that was made. What are the constitutional elements to that? And also I want to ask him about uh, the Scott Walker situation in Wisconsin, whether or not there was something, um, a problem with with some of his uh, taking on public unions being being overturned. Anyway, we'll be right back. Please stay tuned. And, uh, by the way, you can join us, 347-327-9849. Okay, well, 
that's um, that's a pretty high number. I don't know what Barack uh, who expects Barack Obama to cut spending. <laughs> I don't even think he's claiming to do that. And um, they're not so sure on taxes because everyone knows that um, there probably is going to have to be a tax increase next year, no matter who's president. The question is whether or not um, they're going to do it with gusto or not. And I think in the case of Romney, the tax increases would not go to increasing the size of government. They would go toward balancing the budget and paying off the debt, whereas with Obama, it will go toward another stimulus, a new New Deal which is another way of saying we go into the pockets of uh, friends of, of Obama's and, and political hacks. All right, um, Wisconsin Senate. Baldwin, the Democrat, is at 49. Thompson, the Republican, is at 46. That looks to me like it's tightened slightly. Um, I think that um, Baldwin had a bigger leader. I think Thompson was further behind. But it's still it's within the three three point margin of error, but uh, certainly Tommy Thompson has some catching up to do in Wisconsin. I mean that that looks if the election were held today he'd probably lose. Wisconsin on the president poll, Obama forty nine, uh Romney forty six. That's not good, especially since Wisconsin um, is um, you know Paul Ryan's state. And Paul Ryan, of course, is the vice presidential nominee. And I think that there was a bounce in Wisconsin right after his nomination. It looks like that's dissipated. Um, It's still within the three-point margin of error. But the fact that Obama is polling at 49 is not good news. I mean, it's almost 50. Uh, Anytime anyone hits 50, that's huge. Uh, But Romney is not way behind there either at 46. So... That's still competitive. Maybe Wisconsin is one of these states that's responding to this phony tape that came out about Mitt Romney at a house party, which we know is doctored, but that's beside the point. It's too late. Um, And that's a dirty trick. That's like an October surprise. Okay, and I I imagine there's going to be more of those. Okay, here, Romney may be the end of the line for the Republican establishment. This is an article by Scott Rasmussen. Well, I haven't read it, and um, you know, I'm not going. Probably, you know, I have to subscribe to this, and I get it free. So, I, I don't know if I want to read. I, I could probably get it another way, but um, this is worrisome. Only in that Romney is a an establishment Republican. You know, there's no question about that. That's who he is. He's a he's not a, a Rockefeller Republican. He's not a liberal. But he is an establishment Republican. His father was very liberal, by the way. Mother was very liberal when she ran for the Senate in uh, in in Michigan. And I think that if Romney loses, I don't know where the Republican Party is going to go. I mean, can they go further to the right and win? I don't know. I think that Romney is correct to stick with the economic issues. Uh, and I think by doing so and by exposing these elitist, smug, fat cat, left-wing limousine liberals like, you know, these hypocrites like uh, Lizzie Warren, who is the poster child of that, that he could tap into that same public anger that Richard Nixon tapped into back in the 1970s. You know, people forget, we, we think of Nixon because of Watergate and 
you know, as as being a terribly flawed president, and, and he was. But before Watergate, in his first term, it should be noted that Nixon won the 1972 election with a landslide victory that was the largest in American history ever up until that point, and I think still is. He carried 49 states. The only state that voted for McGovern was Massachusetts, and it wasn't. And, and even there, it was close. I mean, that was a complete sweep. Why did Nixon do it? Well, for one thing, he did. You know, he wound down the Vietnam War, and he ended the Vietnam War in victory. That's a, that's one subject. We should remember that uh, we won the Vietnam War, uh, and then it was sold. Vietnam was then sold out by left-wing members of Congress in 1975, people like Joe Biden, who was elected that year, and Patrick Leahy and Ted Kennedy and that whole gang. They sold out South Vietnam after South Vietnam had been at peace for several years by cutting off, suddenly cutting off all aid. Then, of course, North Vietnam attacked. Um, But I think the real reason why Nixon... One, one that year, and I get into this in my blog, what Mitt Romney can learn from Richard Nixon, was that Nixon exposed the, the smug hypocrisy of these left-wing, spoon-fed, elitist, parlor pink, liberal, spoiled college students, and he contrasted that with average Americans who were fighting in Vietnam and who were doing their service. Um, and when he did that, that tapped a nerve in people. I think that that same dynamic is at play here. I think that the, those same people who were, you know, sitting around and wiggling their toes at campfires and singing about Ho Chi Minh and Fidel Castro, while other Americans were out there getting their foot blown off in Vietnam and working for a living, by the way, you know, hard hats, people, blue-collar workers, people who are you know, out there you know, putting in their time trying to uh, raise their families or trying to keep some of which they earned. Those same people are the core supporters of Barack Obama today. Those are the Lizzie Warrens who is there screeching about big corporations and complaining about millionaires and billionaires while she has, your hand in your, while she has her hand in your pocket, while, while one hand is in your pocket and the other hand is stuffing in her own millions from her corrupt deals. Um, you, you know, it's that same dynamic, and I think that if Mitt Romney taps into that, and I think he is trying to do that, he really could have the same kind of victory that Nixon had. I really think he could. I think that Barack Obama could be, and his miserable crowd of left-wing snobs could be swept into the same ash bin of history that uh, the left was swept into back in the 1970s. And it took them a long time to come back. They really didn't come back, actually. The country did change. And the country can change. You know, the left doesn't, it's not inevitable. I'm going to give you an example of where the left changed because they just had the rug completely pulled out from under them. And that is post-war Germany. Post-war Germany, the great leader of post-war Germany, the, the sort of the father of modern Germany, West Germany that was, was Konrad Adenauer. 
And one of the things that Adenauer did, and he was the premier, the prime minister in the 1950s and early 1960s, was that he put in place a legal relationship between the unions and the corporations. It wasn't like in this country where unions have a a kind of an adversarial relationship with their corporations and where unions are involved in uh, supporting candidates with monies, which is very corrupting, and that unions are involved in, you know, the public sector has unions. In Germany, Adenauer put in reforms in which, first of all, there are no public sector unions in Germany. Secondly, unions cannot, by law, be involved in politics. They cannot donate to campaigns. They cannot endorse candidates because a union is not a political entity. It's, a, it's, it's an economic entity. Neither can corporations, by the way. And, and, and this is why, in a sense, I've, I, I'm now becoming against the, uh, the Citizens United decision, because neither unions nor corporations should be involved in politics. These are strictly economic entities. They're there to make profit for their owners, make profit for their workers, in the case of unions, and offer a good or a service to the public. Uh, Union members and corporate individuals certainly can get involved in politics, but the corporation itself and the union itself probably should not be allowed to get involved in politics. Um, In Germany, it's it's illegal. Also, there are laws in Germany which require the union, which which make it illegal for unions to negotiate uh, benefits or, or salary increases above and beyond a ratio of what the company is making. And what that means is that the union has an interest in making sure that the company is profitable because the more profits the company makes, the more the union leaders can then negotiate for pay increases and benefit increases. Uh, So the union members also have representatives who sit on the board of directors of the corporation. I think it's somebody that they elect. And that this person is more than just a window dressing. I mean, not only do they talk about workers' issues at the plants and uh, workers' needs, but they're also brought into decision-making questions with regard to new products, product development, marketing, expansion, investment, and everything else that has to do with what the corporation does. And that's because the, un- the, the, uh, the workers have a lot to say on those topics. Anyone who's successful in business knows that. They know that the guy on the line, the guy you know, who's out there you know, putting together the mold for the, um, for the steel, that that person has a lot to say about the success of the product. They know what, what the success is because they're there. They've got hands on. And so the company listens to the union representative when it comes to things like design and and technology and marketing and all the rest, and that they're both on the same side, which is to make that corporation as successful as possible. Uh, It should be noted that, as a matter just for the record, that um, the union movement in Germany is more conservative than liberal. It's it's to the right of center. It's not left-wing like it is here. And that Germany is not a closed shop. Germany and its various states, they, you know, it's a voluntary, unionism is voluntary, um, th- that unions make up about 20% of the labor force in Germany, 
and that unions have to compete like anything else with non-union uh, workers, just like the corporations have to compete with other corporations. And the system has worked so well. Germany has become such an economic powerhouse, even during the Adenauer years, that the left basically in Germany gave up the ghost. I mean, of course, the left was in control in East Germany. We know that. I mean, the communist, old communist government there, I mean, and that was a complete disaster. But we're talking in West Germany. The Socialist Party, you know, the, the Social Democrats, they gave up the ghost. In the, by the late 1950s, early 60s, it was futile for them to try to um, present an argument of collectivism and, you know, syndicalism and uh, all of the rest because the country didn't need it. It was so obvious that, that the free market had been such a huge success in Germany that they joined it. You know, they basically, uh, yeah, they're, they're still there, but, you know, and they may be left of center a little bit. But the real socialist movement died a natural death in Germany because they had positive policies in place that actually helped improve the country and helped improve the lot of working people as well as everyone else. So this can be done. We don't have to take for granted that we're always going to have a left-wing movement in this country. And I think that in 1972, the Nixon victory did that to a certain degree. It pulled the teeth out of the whole counterculture, left-wing, you know, socialistic, collectivistic, anti-American, internationalist movement that uh, was festering on college campuses. And that really was, at its core, an elitist, liberal limousine movement of spoiled kids that was supported by the trust funds of their parents. And I think that same group is there today, with Elizabeth Warren shrieking about billionaires and millionaires while she's sticking it to working people. I think that if, you, if, if Mitt Romney can make this case, and he is doing it, he needs to be a little bit more, more articulate about it, then he will, he'll prevail, and he needs to ignore the media, which obviously is doing everything it can to try to stop Mitt Romney. And they're pretty open about it. I don't even think they pretend. I mean, you know, it's, it's pretty obvious. that They're not even putting on you know, pretense with regard to objective, objectivity, and they certainly didn't with Nixon in the early 70s either. They despised Nixon. Oh, my God. I mean, eventually they got Nixon too. That's another subject. I might write another column about that. But um, and Nixon was no great conservative either. Nixon was very much like Mitt Romney. He was a, you know, he was even more to the left of Romney actually. And Nixon was a Rockefeller Republican. You know, he was an internationalist. He was a liberal basically. He was a Keynesian when it came to economic theories. I mean, he he tried price fixing and he you know wage and price fixing. He he pulled the dollar off the gold standard. You know, Nixon was uh, was very much a mon an international monetarist. Uh, you know, he, he made peace with China, which of course is something that was probably a good thing. But nevertheless, I mean, it was not <laughs> certainly not in the classic ballywick um, of, uh, of 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 the conservative movement. No, not of Barry Goldwater and his conservatives, and they were around back then too. But uh, Nixon. Not only did he ignore the obvious attempt by the left-wing media to destroy him and to remove him from office, and eventually they did it, 
but in the early in his first term, he exploited it. And uh, and by the way, even uh, George Bush Sr. I think benefited when he was running for president. He was vice president with Reagan, and we might remember that I think it was in uh, it must have been 1987 or 1988. He granted an interview with Dan Rather, who was openly a leftist. And Rather started to give him a hard time on the air, and uh, Bush turned around and he, he dished it right back to him. He said, "Hey, you know, I'll answer the question here. You're not going to, you know, you're, this is a bunch of crap." And um, it, you know, he got agitated on the air, and I think that that actually went a long way toward electing him as president in 2008. I know these things are, you know, kind of stylistic, but they mean something in a deeper level. People want to see Mitt Romney take on this elitist, I mean, George Bush Jr. Remember the comment when George Bush Jr. was at a rally right after he was nominated? He was there with Dick Cheney, and the microphone picked up his saying to Dick Cheney. He pointed to a reporter from the New York Times. I don't remember who it was, but and he referred to him as an a-hole, and then he asked Cheney, he was pointing it out to Cheney, and then Cheney said to him, big time. And that was picked up on the microphone. Well, that enlivened George Bush. It said, yeah, that's right. Bush is taking on these smug, bow-tied, eastern seaboard liberal elitists who are amoral, who don't give a damn about this country, who are internationalists, who don't give a damn about American business, who are interested in tinkering with and interfering with the lives of people because they don't trust people to run their own life and to run their own affairs, and who people are sick of. If Mitt Romney can take on some of these people who are trying to do this incredible hatchet job and who maybe even might be succeeding, that could go a long way. I hope he reads my blog today. I hope that I was clear about it. I'm not claiming to be a brilliant writer here. But I think that I'm on to something. The blog is What Mitt Romney Can Learn from Richard Nixon. It's posted up at my blog site, Chuck Moore Speaks. Check it out for yourself. Just go to Chuck Moore Speaks or A Wig Manifesto. Uh, we'll be back in the second hour with my good friend Albert Navarra. He is the author of Elements of Constitutional Law. We'll be discussing issues in front of the Supreme Court. You're listening to Chuck Moore Speaks. By the way, you're welcome to join the conversation, 347-327-9849. That number, 347-327-9849. Please stay tuned.
347-327-9849 if you'd like to join the conversation. Hour number two of Chuck Moore Speaks. We're, of course, now on Cyber Station USA Radio Network, our producing station, and, of course, our online partners, blog, uh, the um, uh, Blog Talk Radio. Um, I'd like to mention we got Albert Navarro coming up. I might as well take this brief opportunity to read my latest blog, which is up on Chuck Moore Speaks' blog site. What Mitt Romney can learn from Richard Nixon. I'm just going to read it right off the bat here. In 1969, at the height of the student protests against the Vietnam War, President Nixon had a private conversation with the wife of an American serviceman while he was visiting the Pentagon. The discourse was overheard by a reporter and was recounted in the book Before the Fall, an insider's view of the pre-Watergate White House by William Sapphire. Nixon expressed how much he admired men like the woman's husband. Quote, I have seen them. They are the greatest. You see these bums, you know, blowing up the campuses. Listen, the boys that are on the college campuses today are the luckiest people in the world, going to the greatest universities, and here they are burning up the books. Then out there in Vietnam, we have the kids who are just doing their duty, and I have seen them. They stand tall, and they are proud, unquote. The liberal media, which hated Nixon going back to the late 1940s when he played a key role in exposing one of their own, FDR's former Undersecretary of State Alger Hiss as an agent of Stalin, responded with the same ferocity and distortion that Mitt Romney is experiencing today. The media reported that Nixon back then had called all American college students bums. It should be noted that the tape of Mitt Romney speaking at a House Party fundraiser, the one that the media is frantically claiming to be a, quote, smoking gun, to use a Watergate metaphor, was altered as one of the two minutes of the videos of Romney were either deleted or are just missing. And while we're on to the Nixon metaphors, this reminds me of that missing minute in the Watergate tapes that contributed to Nixon's resignation. The central message here is that Nixon contrasted the average working American, what he called the silent majority, hard-working, good, patriotic people, with the left-wing elitist, spoiled campus liberal protesters who were burning their comfortable colleges while getting all warm and fuzzy over Ho-Ho-Ho-Chi Minh. These same types today, Obama's core supporters, are not affected by the most rampant unemployment since World War II. They don't care about the increase in poverty because many of them, receiving public benefits, want the gravy train to keep rolling along. Sapphire wrote that shortly after the media flap over Nixon's comments, on May 7, 1969, construction workers stormed New York City Hall and beat up college student protesters who were occupying that building. Thus the hard hats, working people, the silent majority, began to react to the elitist and out-of-touch college students. This reaction and the rejection of their demented utopian ideas and of their pile of pink silver spoons continued to grow until the 1972 election. Nixon won that election 
in the biggest landslide in history against his anti-war opponent, George McGovern, who carried only one state, Massachusetts. Mitt Romney needs to stay real and to continue to point out the hypocrites, Elizabeth Warren is a poster child for that, who couldn't care less about the the plight of working people, about the silent majority. The more vicious and left-wing the media became with Nixon, the more that majority grew. That same dynamic is at play today. Anyway, that's my column up today on Chuck Moore Speaks, what Mitt Romney can learn from Richard Nixon. Uh, Please do check it out. Um, We're going to be back after this break with uh, Albert Navarro. We're going to be talking about the Constitution and the matters legal. You're welcome to join us um, at 347-327-9849. That number again is 347-327-9849. Please stay tuned. Chuck Morse hosting Chuck Morse Speaks. I'd like to welcome aboard our affiliate stations, WWPRAM in Tampa Bay, Florida, KSKQFM in Ashland, Oregon, of course, Stitches, where you can hear this program on your cell phone. It's a free app. All you need to do is download it. And, of course, our host station, Cyber Station, USA Radio Network, and Blog Talk Radio. Uh, I'd like to welcome aboard my guest this hour, Albert Navarra. He's the author of Elements of Constitutional Law. Albert, how are you? Wait a minute. There we go. Al- Sorry about that. Albert, how are you? I'm doing great, Mr. Morse. How are you doing? Very good. You have to excuse my ham-handedness here. I run the board now. That's um, okay. I like ham. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Specifically prosciutto. <laughs> yeah, oh, there you go. Well, that that, that I can get. Are you, are you stateside, by the way? I'm stateside, yep. Uh, sunny, sunny Southern California today. That's nice. Um, you are, the, as the author of Elements of Constitutional Law and as a regular guest of mine, I know that you love to dissect Supreme Court and court decisions. And I just want to ask you about, a decision that I have not even had, I've not had a chance to look at at all. I would totally understand it if you're not aware of this, but I've heard rumblings about it. I think I just saw a quick blurb about it. It's a state decision in Wisconsin uh, with regard to uh, Governor Scott Walker's rulings uh, concerning public union uh, organizing and uh, the public union collective bargaining right. Do you know anything about that? No. That's a state court decision, though, huh? Yes, it is. I believe it's state. I don't think it's a federal court. It might be federal, not as in Supreme, but federal court. But my understanding is that a portion of Scott Walker's um, legislation was thrown out. I'm not sure what portion. I don't know anything about it. Yeah, I don't either. I'll look it up, though, and uh, I'll see, first of all, did it raise only uh, state issues or issues under the state constitution or 
did it raise issues under the federal constitution? Because if it raised federal issues, then it could work its way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Right. Well, that is the question. And again, I only saw a very passing reference to it. I don't know if it was state or federal. I hope it was not federal because this is a state matter. It's a, it deals with public unions working for the state. So, But we'll see. You never know. Obviously, the federal uh, bench can get involved in all kinds of things that really are not their jurisdiction. Well, um, the, yeah, the, the, the Supreme Court's limited to deciding matters that arise under the federal constitution and uh, U.S. treaties and so forth. Um, they have no power. The Supreme Court has no power to judge matters under the state constitution. And sometimes when a state Supreme Court decides an issue and uh, the state court decision rests independently on the state constitution, then the, the, the U.S. Supreme Court can't touch it. They just, they have no power. It's out of their hands. But, but they do touch it occasionally. And, in <laughs> fact, uh, I'll give you an example. It came up during a discussion that I had with Patrick a while back on, uh, on religion, and we had that we, we interviewed an author who wrote a book about the Vitali decision, and that was the decision to remove the right of New York State to school prayer, and what the uh, the chief, uh, not the lawyer in the case, but I think the state uh, solicitor at the time mentioned that the Supreme Court really had no standing when it came to that decision because the Constitution, the First Amendment, says that the federal government shall not state, you know, you know, shall not um, establish a, a religion or interfere with the practice thereof, or Congress cannot. And then it wasn't Congress that did this. It was a state that did it. Right. So, well, the, yeah. Go, go, yeah. We have to make a distinction here. Um, now, you know, states uh, do things all the time under state law. Uh, you know, state uh, governors uh, undertake executive actions. That, that's a state action. That's an action of the state. State legislatures pass uh, state laws. Obviously, that's an action by the state. Um, uh, but um, the, the, the question of federal jurisdiction, the question of whether the U.S. Supreme Court can decide a case, that turns on whether or not an issue is raised under the U.S. Constitution. So, for example, in, in the case that you cited there, Vitali, it's Engel versus Vitali. That was a U.S. Supreme yes. Court case. And what happened there was the, the state of New York um, passed a law, basically, that um, allowed for prayer in public school. The prayer was, by the way, here's, I, have, I have the actual prayer right here. Almighty God, we acknowledge our dependence upon thee, and we beg thy blessings upon us, our parents, our teachers, and our country. That was the prayer that um, they read aloud in uh, New York State. So that's a, that's a state action, right? right? That's something that the state of New York did. But the people who challenged that action raised an issue under the U.S. Constitution. They said that that action by the state violated the Establishment Clause under the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, and that's what gave the U.S. Supreme Court the power or the jurisdiction to hear that case and render a decision in which they invalidated the program. They basically said right. – uh, Here's another quote. This is from the U.S. Supreme Court. There can be no doubt that New York's state prayer program officially establishes the religious beliefs embodied in the regent's prayer, end, court, end quote. So that's what the court said in that case. But, but, but uh, Albert, my point is that it did not violate the First Amendment because the First Amendment says that Congress 
shall make no law with regard to the establishment of religion or the interference of the practice. And it wasn't Congress that made this law. It gotcha. was the state. Gotcha. And that's a that's a great, great question. And the Supreme Court answered that question a few years ago in another case called Gitlo, where it said that the First Amendment applies not only to Congress, it also applies to the states. So the First Amendment of the Constitution, although it's part of the U.S. Constitution, and it says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, the U.S. Supreme Court interpreted that to mean that, you know what, that also applies to states. So not How only did Congress. How that? Yeah. I, mean, what, uh, I, I, I would like to see that the Gitlow decision because that you talk about um, activist courts. I mean, there's, you know, the, the language is pretty clear. You know, well, the, the uh, First Amendment says that Congress shall write no laws, and then uh, the Ninth and Tenth Amendments say that anything that's not specifically delegated to the federal government is to be um, handled by the states and the people. Right, and you know what? Um, I um, I misspoke there. By the way, the uh, the Supreme Court um, applied the First Amendment to states in a case called Everson, not Gitlow. Gitlow, oh, okay. yeah, Gitlow was a case where the Supreme Court applied the the uh, freedom of speech part of the First Amendment to uh, states. So you asked, how does the Supreme Court do that? It's it's done it about a, you know a half a dozen times where it's taken a part of the First Amendment or other parts of the Constitution that look like they're literally intended to apply only to Congress, and the Supreme Court applied it to the states, too. Um, in Gitlow, the, the, the Supreme Court said that the, the, the freedom of speech in the First Amendment applies not just to Congress, but to states. In Everson, the Supreme Court said that the Establishment Clause in the First Amendment applies not just to Congress, but to states. In another case called Cantwell, the Supreme Court said that the free exercise clause, which protects the free exercise of your religious beliefs, applies not just to Congress but to states. And in other cases, the Supreme Court said that the Sixth Amendment protection of the right, you know, right to counsel applies not just to Congress but to states, and and on and on and on. So now and then, right, the right, court, right. I mean, know, I, and I suppose as you talk about this, it makes me think that I guess in certain cases they would have to. I mean, for in the case of the free, of freedom of speech, we can't have a state ban someone's right to speak or to express themselves and yet have that be a federal protection. It's um, one of think, the, yeah. I'm sorry. It's one of the it's it's one of the examples. It's one of the things that makes us a united states of America in some sense. Um and I'll give you another example that, you know, some conservative uh excuse me, um Another example of an addition, a different issue, Second Amendment. Um, remember, for years, for centuries, we didn't know whether the Second Amendment uh, provided the right to bear arms only for state militias or also for individuals. And you and I talked about this on your program a while ago. In mm -hmm. D.C. versus Heller in 2008, the Supreme Court said, yeah, the Second Amendment you know, provides the right of individuals to keep and bear, bear arms, not just people who are part of some kind of a state militia. But the question is, okay, does that apply just to federal law or also to states? Um, and, well, and a yeah, couple of years in later – In that case, if you, if you read the actual language of the Second Amendment, it's quite clear that it applies to the states. Well, that's I mean, what the Supreme Court did. That's what the Supreme Court said two years but, later. But, but in, versus, in that yeah. case, it doesn't say Congress shall regulate – Gun, you know, gun laws. It just simply says flat out the right to keep and bear arms, and you know, is guaranteed. I, I mean, I don't have the language in front of me. I should, but but so I maybe think it, that, 
yeah, maybe it was an easier easier decision for the Supreme Court, and um, but uh, it's just another example of where you know it, we have the text of the Constitution and the amendments, and it's an issue sometimes whether okay, does this just does this just apply to federal law or does it also apply to state law? And you know sometimes it goes up to the Supreme Court and they make a decision. So. Right, but I, I think that um, the idea of you know th there's some activism going on there. Um, Albert, we have a, we have the business in front of us right now with regard to uh, the making of this offensive anti-Muslim film by private hmm. citizens inside the United States, and I think that um, even though this is not the main cause apparently of the of the murder of our ambassador in Libya, that's another subject. It nevertheless has created a lot of agitation in, in Arab and Muslim countries, and I think a lot of that is because they don't understand how we do things in the United States, because they don't have an experience of free press. I you agree. Know, in, those, in those countries, they, they, everything is centrally controlled. You know, it's a, in, in, a, in, the, in the literal sense, they're very socialistic. You know, public ownership of the means of, of communication mm -hmm. is one of the planks of the, uh, of the socialist definition. And that the government controls the media there, so when something comes out that's offensive, the government is responsible because they control it. Whereas in this country, we don't. So if if, if, a, if a private citizen, some nincompoop, wants to come out with a an anti-Muslim film, the, the responsibility resides with the person who did it, not the government of the United States. So what, when you have a, a, the Muslim Brotherhood president of Egypt calling uh, President Obama and asking him to apologize for this film on, the, on behalf of the United States, President Obama wisely said that he really can't do that because the United States didn't create the film. Yeah, that's right. Um, and you make a good distinction there between uh, how some other countries operate and view things and, and how um, America operates. Uh, right. The big, the big difference is that, you know, in this country um, – we protect – our Constitution protects offensive, low-value speech. Yes. Th that's what this film is. It's offensive, and it has very low value. And, the, right. and you might say, why? Why would our Constitution, why would our Supreme Court over and over protect such offensive, low-value speech? And the reason – one reason is that competition makes things better. When you look at athletics, when you look at businesses competing with each other, trying to offer better products and services, we all understand that, that principle that competition makes things better. Well, the same thing applies when it comes to speech, ideas, opinions, perspectives, policies. If all these different competing ideas are um, thrown into the marketplace, so to speak, this what we call this marketplace of ideas – and, and they're and they're able to compete against each other. The idea is, at the end of the day, the best ideas prevail, the best arguments prevail, the best opinions, perspectives, policies prevail. And this competition of ideas and opinions and perspectives makes things better. Um, and so, what what the First Amendment does, and what the Supreme Court does when it you know when it protects offensive, low value speech, it's it's not really trying to protect the speech so much. It's not really trying to protect this film so much, The Innocence of Muslims. It's trying to protect the market, the marketplace of ideas. And we all understand financial regulations that try to protect our financial market, the integrity, the transparency of our financial market. The First Amendment does the same thing with an equally important market, the marketplace of ideas. And that, that's what the Constitution 
the First Amendment's all about here. Right. I mean, I, I actually think it's a little bit more fundamental than that. I mean, it's not so much to protect diversity of opinion. It simply recognizes a basic right, a natural right, a God-given right, which is the ability to express oneself without any hindrance and at the same time to take responsibility for that which one expresses. I mean, you have a right to express yourself, but you don't have a right to lie about someone else and defame them or slander them. And, uh, you know, that's why, you know, your right kind of stops with your uh, an understanding that you do not have the right to violate someone else's rights. And we have laws, of course, that protect people within those sorts of communications where you can, you know, sue somebody and whatnot. Same thing with libel. I mean, you don't have a right to – you have a right to write whatever you want in ex expressing, but you don't have the right to write lies about another person. So – you know, right, you know, in in the case of this movie, they didn't, you know, uh, they didn't lie about anyone. They expressed their opinion. It's sheer political opinion, as odious as it may be, and that 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 I think is simply we view that as a natural right. The Constitution is just there as a sort of a, a vehicle to recognize what we consider to already exist, which is you the natural what? right to express yourself. You just said something so important, and I agree with you. You you said that this is something even more fundamental than protecting the marketplace of ideas. It goes to right. natural rights. And what you're doing, you're talking about the Enlightenment that started with guys like John Locke, philosophers like John Locke, who spoke about these inalienable rights of life, liberty, and property. And this was, that was only about 250 years ago, but it's a philosophy out of which our country and our Constitution was born. So. Sure. You're um, you're going right to the, the the heart of the matter here, and it's a it's a, it's a difference. It's a distinction between other countries that haven't really um, experienced you know Enlightenment philosophy, haven't really bought into it, and they're more in a you know government control mode, closer to maybe sure. I don't know fascism or dictator yeah. dictatorship. Well, they don't understand they don't understand the idea that. Um that these rights are natural. I mean, I, I think that John Locke identified these rights, but he didn't create them either. I mean, this comes from God. I mean, right. or it comes from Jesus. Sure. He stood up to Pontius Pilate and in the uh, courtroom before his crucifixion, and he, uh, he said publicly, he said, you know, when Pilate said to him, he goes, well, where do you, um, who are, where, where do you derive this, the right to defy me? And he goes, my, my power comes from somewhere greater than you, something outside of you. Yeah, and and when, when he when he did that, he you know he exercised not only free speech, but he fir he tossed the first gauntlet down at um, sort of man-made authoritarian governments that try to control speech. Right and now, by simply exercising it. Exactly now, look, we're, you know, this came from this film came out what ten days ago or something, and it just well, actually like, came out the, the one of the I mean just to it's, uh, the irony is it's been out for many months. You're right. You're right. And, it has. Uh, I think that what happened was. Maybe a couple of weeks ago it was translated into Arabic, or there was some yes. there was some sort of a change made. Ex and my understanding is that the people behind this are actually a Coptic Christian Egyptians. I think I don't know. I really don't know much about it. But yeah, well, here's here's my point though. In, in just the like you say, ten days or so where it became really public, it just seems like every day the the protests, the violence and disruption and, and breach of the peace is getting worse and worse and worse in the Middle East, and you know, we all have an emotional reaction to that, okay? We're not, like, completely stoic and detached here. Nobody not. likes – of course not, right? I mean, our and, ambassador uh, was stripped, murdered, and dragged through the streets. 
Yeah, of course, and we all feel that as Americans. It, it makes us sick. You know, it gives us. I mean, it's it's horrible. And so the emotional reaction is, we need to do something. We need to yank the film. Right. We need to punish the producer. It's like you have a rock in your shoe and it's hurting your foot. Take the rock out. It's common sense, right? That's the emotional uh, response. But the problem is, when you do that, if you do that, you introduce censorship into this marketplace of ideas. Freedom of speech becomes a little less free. And do you move suddenly from democracy to dictatorship? Do you move suddenly from freedom to fascism? No, but you do take the first step. And I think well, that's, that's important right. to recognize. And that's why it bothers me when I've heard people say that um, the filmmakers have to be punished for making this film. You know, I, I think that all Americans, I, I would hope, I mean, 99.9% of Americans don't condemn the film. I mean, nobody likes to see something made that that's deliberately and, and unnecessarily insulting, you know, the, uh, the Muhammad. I mean, I've seen the film. It was posted on actually the website of somebody I interviewed. And it doesn't get into anything that's really of value. I mean, there are things you can criticize Islam about. It just is insulting, and it's very, very, you know, uh, unfortunate images that that you know it, it, it is, but it has nothing to do with the government and i think that there, there's a concern that um if we apologize for it or if our government apologizes for it um then that could pose a problem because the government didn't do this you know it's uh, you you can apologize for it as a person saying we well, wish these other people didn't do it but um by apologizing for it as the government that's almost a step in the direction of um of starting to censor, you know, private expression, I think. Right. And, you know, there are exceptions to the First Amendment. There are a handful well, of sure. examples. Right. Well, there there's, are there's, um, there's Oliver Wendell Holmes' maxim, you don't yell fire in a crowded theater. And, and of course, you cannot call for, for the murder of, of a, a public official. You know, exactly. That, you could be arrested for that. But that's that's when, when when someone is engaging in in a specific crime. That's like a runaway driver at a at a bank robbery. You know, you're actually targeting a specific person or group of people and exactly. you're putting them directly at risk. This is not just expressing a, an opinion that uh, a, a derogatory opinion about general general categories of people. Exactly. For, for example, there's, a, there's, there's what we call the fighting words exception to the First Amendment. Fighting words can be prohibited. Sure. And if this film amounted to fighting words in the eyes of the Supreme Court, it could be punished. But um, the problem is, you know, what is fighting words? Well, I mean, we have a really famous example called Cohen versus California, U.S. Supreme Court case, Vietnam era case, 1971. Um, yep. Cohen is walking down the hallway of a courthouse in L.A. He's got a jacket on. The jacket says, F the draft, okay? Mm. He's convicted of breach of the peace. And the, it goes up to the U.S. Supreme Court. They reverse the conviction, and they say, basically, this jacket was not really directed towards an individual person. There's nobody who was walking down the hall of that courthouse in L.A. who could say, hey, that jacket was directed towards me, Right. Uh, it's just it, – and, it, and the video – this video is a lot like that. It's, there's, it's up there on YouTube. It's not really directed towards anybody. There's nobody who can say, you know what, that movie was directed towards me. It's fighting words, and it should be prohibited. So just looking at one exception, uh, the fighting words doctrine, it, it, doesn't, it, you know, it doesn't apply to this case. 
Um, I looked at the film. I didn't see any nudity. So, uh, no. you know, there's an exception to the First Amendment uh, regarding obscenity. Obscenity can be, uh, can be prohibited. I don't think this film is obscene in, in, this, in that sense. There's no nudity there. Um, right. There's another uh, exception to the First Amendment called hostile audience. Speech that uh, tends to incite uh, imminent uncontrolled violence can be prohibited. And mm-hmm. um, But I don't think this film qualifies as that either. There's a famous case called Cantwell where Cantwell walked up. He's on the street. He walks up to a couple guys, and he says, hey, can I play a record? This is back when they used to play records. And the guy sure. says, sure. So Cantwell plays the record. The record attacks the Catholic Church and the Catholic religion. And guess what? These two guys are Catholic. So Cantwell ends up getting convicted for breach of the peace. Goes up to the Supreme Court. They reverse the conviction, and they basically say, look, there is no personal threat here, personal attack, personal abuse. Um, he just played a record. These guys consented to it. Um, it this, this, this does not you know, satisfy the hostile audience exception. And I would say that this film is even less confrontational than Cantwell in his photograph because Cantwell was on the street face-to-face with these two Catholic guys, Catholic guys yeah. playing an anti-Catholic record. This film, Innocence of Muslims, is on the Internet. It's not in anybody's face. It's not a face-to-face confrontational thing. So the point is, yeah, we have freedom of speech. General rule is you know, everything's protected. There are a few exceptions, but when you go through them one at a time, this film just doesn't seem to satisfy any of the exceptions. It's hard to really see how the government could prohibit or punish it in any way under current right, constitutional right. law. And, and I suppose the other side uh, aspect of this, maybe a byproduct of it, is that uh, it might be a warning to the government, our government that is, to not get involved in funding speech and not get involved with funding the media. This is one of the reasons why I oppose, for example, the government funding national public radio. You know, because when the government sends money, like, for example, the controversy around the, the uh, artist that put a crucifix in a glass of urine. I think you might remember that. It was maybe about 10 years ago. Wasn't so much the disgusting and offensive nature of that piece of so-called art, which it definitely was, but the fact that he had gotten a grant from the National um, Endowment for the Arts. In other words, that if, if the government, if our government had given a grant to these people and they had created that film, then I would have to say that the Arab street would be right. You know, this. You know, when the government gives money to create controversial you know films or artwork or or any other thing like that then it is in a sense a tacit endorsement of of the um of of that media now of course that gets into the other question which is should should the government never give any grants to artwork should we not give a grant for a beethoven symphony or mozart you know i mean that that's not i mean i suppose that what, what it comes down to is that um when the government gets involved in the business of granting monies, whether it be the form of a grant or a subsidy to to um, speech in any of its form, artistic and otherwise and abstract, they have to be very, very careful. And it has to be done by a, a, w- reviewed by probably a group of citizens that come from various walks of life who can take a good, hard look at it and, and say, is this money going to support a house, high school cheerleaders, which is fine, or is it going to support a, a piece of art that shows the Virgin Mary in, in horse manure, you know, which is offensive? Right, and and you know the when the, the government would probably um, get in trouble 
the closer it comes to endorsing a specific message uh, or specific work. Um, on the other hand, if the if the government uh, funds broader, more broader-based educational goals, uh, it, it's it's probably um, uh, safer under the Constitution. Right, but I, I, and I think that it's there's no, it's not a matter of it. I don't think it's unconstitutional. I mean, any more than it's unconstitutional for the government to fund the building of the Washington Monument. I mean, you could say that's a piece of art, but but I, I just would point out that it has to be done with a lot of care. That that it's there, there has to be a review process. There might have to be perhaps a congressional committee lo- looks at it, and you know it's it, it, you know because um, we could have gotten into trouble with this. I mean, I think that the uh, the, the crucifix in urine was offensive not only as a piece of art, it, it, but the fact that the thing that bothered people more was the fact that it was funded by the government. It was a government endorsement of of this anti-Christian uh, piece of work, so-called. Exactly, <laughs> so-called. <laughs> Anyways, but um, but there does seem to be some clamor over the, you know having these people. You know, step out, and and I think that one of them even was arrested for something. Is my understanding? Yeah. Well, uh, you, know, I, I, you know, something else about this film. It, it, you know, as offensive as it is, and as low value as it is, it has certainly um, reinvigorated the discussion about American Middle East policy, both looking back. I mean, you're, you're, get, you're hearing a lot of people comment, you know, uh, retrospectively about uh, Americans' policy with respect to the Middle East, and also looking forward, you know, wh- what should we do in the Middle East? Uh, how much money should we be sent, sending these countries? How many troops should we have there? Um, the, you know, it does. so it, it's you know, it's 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 ironic in a way. It is as offensive as it is, as as low value as it is, when you have a free market. Of speech, and even the junk speech is allowed to enter the market. Sometimes positive things come out of it. It sparks debate, conversation, and the idea again is that this com- this competition of ideas and and philosophies makes things better, and that our policies will be better, and and in the long run will be better off for it. It's hard to see that and feel that in the short run. In the short run, all you hear and see is the pain. But in the long run, that's basically the philosophy of the First Amendment and the way the Supreme Court has interpreted it over over the years. No, I think you're absolutely right. The free speech does tend to show um, the motivation and the orientation of of people around the world and that they would be involved in these bizarre anti-American protests as if somehow the United States um, deserves this sort of, of thing. I mean, we've you know, we, here we are sending them uh, enormous amounts of money, which I don't understand because these countries, many of them, are very oil rich and they're, they're resource rich, and and yet this is what we get. You know, it's just uh, it's hard to it's really it really is hard to understand when you get down to it and when you ask them what is this all about. I mean, I have my theories in terms of um, some of the political orientation. I think there is some influence there from the radical left, in my opinion, going back to the days of the Soviet Union, that is just kind of an anti-American impulse to, uh, to to view America within a conspiratorial context, that we're secretly exploiting people and, and this and that because of our success, and that threatens them. But 
that's obviously not a reason to to do this. I mean, the fact that they would murder the ambassador and and, and all of that—it's completely bizarre, actually. I mean, these are this particularly this case because we just helped Libyans get rid of Gaddafi. So yeah, it's you know, America is an experiment. It's it's it, 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 you know, it started with the Enlightenment and and uh, mm. philosophers like John Locke, and then our Constitution. And it's we're really unique. When people talk about American exceptionalism, uh, this is one reason that um, you know Americans say that they are exceptional is because they have a First Amendment that allows for such wide freedom of speech, even you know at the expense of offending people and causing sometimes firestorms. It's an experiment, and there's no other country in the world that has a constitution like that, and that cherishes freedom so much and trusts so much that in the long run um, it's going to work out. And, uh, you know, I've, I heard someone um, uh, recently say on the radio in, L- in L.A. that, um, you know, the, the Jews were called the chosen people for this idea of monotheism. And he, mm-hmm. he, he said, you know, uh, his name was Bill Handel, in fact. He's on KFI, local radio down yeah, there. Yeah, sure. He's a, he's a uh, lawyer. Good, good yeah, talk to us. He said, you know what? He says, I think Americans were the chosen people for this idea called democracy. Mm. And I thought it was a brilliant idea because, you know, just as monotheism was fairly new, you know, with what, 3,000 years ago, democracy is, is fairly new now. And it's sure. just, it's so different. And, you know, with, with the free markets, we all see the uh, the productivity and progress and commerce that is generated from free markets but we don't necessarily understand and see so clearly the benefits that come from a free marketplace of ideas and and from freedom of speech it's not as tangible as right. you know zuckerberg and facebook and bill gates and microsoft and steve jobs and apple right it's easy for us to understand the benefits of a free market and capitalism you know, when it comes to money, but it's not so tangible and easy for us to see. It's not so easy for us to connect the dots over a span of decades, you know, of the, the benefits that derive from freedom of speech. And we're experimenting with it. And maybe we are the chosen country for this experiment, right. you know, and that's, that's, that's basically it. Well, it's a, it's a sign of, of general advance in civilization, which has culminated in the American experience, I think, and that uh, many Americans take it for granted. You know, we wake up in the morning and look out the window and think, oh, free speech. It's like it, it grows on trees. It's something that you have to – it is natural to man, but yet you always have to defend it against uh, those who want to uh, somehow compromise it. And at a time of stress like this, when, when these sorts of things happen, there is a tendency to try to uh, you know, control things and maybe curtail it by looking for a scapegoat or a real enemy who, who is involved in it. And so, you know, you have to be careful about that. But I want to just switch gears a little bit here, Albert. Mm-hmm. Albert Navarro being my guest, Enemy Elements of Constitutional Law. And I want to just go back to an issue that you've discussed quite passionately and that um, I want to reflect on a little bit more, and that was this, I think, very strange decision made by Chief Justice John Roberts regarding the Obamacare decision. Sure, sure. Um, well, this is something that's, um, you know, just to put it into today's perspective, it is a huge issue in this campaign for the presidency. 
On the one hand, you have uh, people who say that because of Obamacare, which they support, that women have a right to have contraception, uh, that that by law their companies have to provide them with that, and that that's a good thing, and that somehow to question that is is restricting women's ability to get contraception, which is not true because it's every contraception is around and it's a, it's always been insured by people who want to insure it. But on the other side, you have people who are concerned with the, the mandate and the fact that I, and you might have some more details on this. Starting January 1st, which is only a few months away, uh, there are certain aspects of this thing that are going to start kicking in. It's going to happen much more. In, in in 2015 or 2014, but um, there's going to be several new mandatory taxes on businesses uh, that are directly related to Obamacare, and then I think that the personal tax is going to kick in in uh, 2015. And now the uh, the Office of Management and Budget is admitting that we're talking about I think they said something like 12 million people are going to be hit with this new tax. Um, it's a huge issue on both sides, um, and uh, I think that the the Roberts decision seems to have created the same sorts of legal and governmental distortions in our system that Roe versus Wade created. Uh, in that, once those decisions were were rendered, and they seem to be somewhat divorced from basic constitutional understandings. It, it contorted the whole system because afterwards everything is de- is kind of building from that and dependent upon it. I mean, in the case of Roe versus Wade, ever since then, there are these huge fights around judicial confirmations, statewide, you know, federal for the federal bench, Supreme Court, and otherwise, because people who support that decision are afraid that it might be viewed as unconstitutional. People who are against it want it to be declared unconstitutional. So that this becomes the whole issue around any any judge going into office, when none of that should be the case. And, and I think the same thing might be happening with Obamacare. Well, it's 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 a very important decision, uh, not not just because it affects healthcare, which is you know something like 18% of the economy, but because of the legal precedence that it sets. Um, you know, start with the basics. Uh, you know, Article Six of the Constitution says that the, the Constitution is the supreme law of the land, and an 1803 case called Marbury versus Madison says the Supreme Court's the final word in interpreting the Constitution and saying what it means. And right. so, uh, this isn't just a healthcare decision; it's a decision by the Supreme Court about what the Constitution means. And uh, and it's precedent. It's a case that you know future uh, opinions can cite to and follow. And um, the 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 scary part about the decision, the, the the part about the decision that makes it unique and unprecedented, is where the chief justice said, you know looked at a law, the healthcare law, that something like 18 times Congress says this thing is a penalty, and he said. It's not a penalty; it's a tax. It, the Supreme Court has never done that before, and you could read the dissenting opinion. They bring that up, and they're right. The, the Supreme Court has never looked at some yeah. kind of monetary fine or tax or whatever that Congress itself called the penalty, and then turn around and call it 
attacks. Even even Obama and those who supported this went out of their way to say this was not a tax. Right. You know, the, they, but but uh, I mean, yeah. I, I guess the question is, is it or isn't it a tax? I think it is a tax. I, you know, <laughs> here's the thing. It when it, why does this matter, right? Why does it matter? Penalty tax. Why does it matter? It matters because Article One, Section Eight, gives the Congress the power to raise taxes to pay for debts for the general uh, welfare and common defense. Okay, Article One, Section Eight gives Congress the power to tax. So if Congress tax, passes a law and and taxes something. That's constitutional. For example, if Congress decided they wanted to tax the provision of medical services or the sale of medical products, they could do that. That would be mm-hmm. absolutely constitutional under Article One, Section 8. In fact, sure. if Hillary Clinton were elected president, she probably would have, at least according to the way she campaigned, she would have called for some kind of universal health care paid for by a tax, paid for by an Article One, Section 8 tax. It would have been constitutional. Yes. But – that's not what happened. What the Affordable Health Care Act did, you know, some people call it Obamacare, is something different. It didn't tax the provision of health services. It did not tax the provision or sale of medical goods. What it did was force people to buy insurance or pay money to the government. That's something completely different than an Article One, Section 8 tax. It was basically a mandate for you to buy something and, and enter into commerce. Well, so, see, that's, why wasn't the issue brought up? Because you're quite right. I mean, the government has a, the Congress has a right to tax. The government, uh, one sure. of the first things George Washington did when he became president was he put a tax on whiskey. How about and that? There was a, <laughs> that's right. And there was a whiskey rebellion in western Pennsylvania. But uh, – you know, in a sense, the the main issue here is not necessarily the tax itself, and I do think it is a tax, but it's the whether or not the government co- can coerce certain people to buy something. In other words, you know, they can co- they can make certain people buy a tax because they use something, right. as in the case of the whiskey tax. Exactly. You didn't have to buy whiskey. I mean, but if you buy whiskey, you pay a small one two cent tax. But in this case, it was as if the government was forcing people to either buy whiskey and pay the tax or not buy whiskey and get charged with the tax. You're exactly right. And that that's the Commerce Clause analysis. That, and that's why we, I was saying for two years this law is never going to fly under the Commerce Clause because um, Congress can't force you to enter into commerce. If you're already in commerce – you're buying something, you're selling something, you're transporting something, right. Congress can tax you, Congress can regulate you. But if you're not already involved in commerce, if you don't already have insurance, Congress can't force you to buy insurance under the Commerce Clause. And the Chief Justice agreed with that. But he went back to Article 1, Section 8, called this a tax, and upheld it as constitutional as a tax. And that was unprecedented. Yeah, but wait a minute. If, if it's a tax, then a tax can be repealed by Congress or passed by Congress, but the but, but did the uh, the Supreme Court opinion in any way touch upon the the mandatory nature of this over certain people that they would have to buy something? In other words, you know, a tax is just give me this amount of money. This is something that says you have to buy something against your will. Right. I mean, is there any and, – and I think that if the Supreme Court ruled that they can do that, as you said, it's like the broccoli rule. They can force you to eat broccoli. 
right. then um, there's nothing that anybody can do. I mean, it, whether it, Mitt Romney is elected, I mean, I suppose they could could defund it or something, or maybe they could reduce it. But it's the law. I mean, they're stuck with it. Yeah. Well, Congress could um, pass another law and uh, and uh, uh, through legislation get rid of the Health Care Act. Uh, th- so that that is a legal remedy. You'd need new law from Congress. But um, going back to um, how the how the Chief Justice uh, justified this, um, the only way the he, the only way the Supreme Court could uphold this as a tax is if the Supreme Court concluded that it was not a penalty or a fine. And the the reason is very simple because under um, under the the Article One, Section Eight tax cases, there's a sort of a bipolar rule. If if Congress has the power to regulate the thing, they can tax it. The tax is seen as a necessary and proper exercise of Congress's power to regulate something. So, for example, interstate trucking, right? Congress can regulate interstate trucking all day long because it's it's interstate commerce, and so therefore Congress can tax. Interstate trucking. Uh, Congress's tax of interstate uh, trucking would be seen as a necessary and proper exercise of Congress's power to regulate interstate trucking. That's one half of the test. The other part, though, is what happens if Congress does not have the power to regulate something? Then can it tax it? And the answer depends. It's a, the rule, is, for example, in this case, does Congress have the power to regulate your decision to buy health care? No. And the Chief Justice admitted that. Congress, the Chief Justice said, under the Commerce Clause, Congress does not have the power to regulate your decision to buy health care. Okay, so the next step is the, the Chief Justice had to determine something. He had to decide whether this money that you pay to the government is a penalty, in which case it would be unconstitutional, or whether it was intended to just raise revenue, in which case it would be constitutional. The Chief Justice analyzed the law. This is the correct law. And it's basically like a switch. It's up or down. If the chief justice determined that this money that you pay for failing to buy insurance was intended to punish your decision not to buy insurance, like a fine or a penalty, he would have to hold it unconstitutional, even as a tax. On the other hand, if the chief justice decided that this money that you pay to the government if you don't buy insurance is just intended to raise revenue for the government, then it's constitutional. And you can guess which way he decided. He decided that – the money that you pay when you don't buy insurance is intended to raise revenue, that Congress passed that that thing to raise revenue. And it's just – it doesn't make sense because, number one, Congress said like 18 times it was a penalty. They never said they, they, they this thing was intended to raise revenue. And second, the Supreme Court has never taken a law where it said in the law this is a penalty and determined or you know rewritten the law in effect to say it's a tax. So – I know mm-hmm. it's very technical, but I, I, wonder, I just want to make it clear that the Supreme Court, the Chief Justice, had a legal roadmap to follow, a very defined roadmap, and, and he followed it. You know, he, he said it's unconstitutional under the Commerce Clause, and that was correct. He said that it, you know, it's, it's not constitutional as a regular tax because Congress doesn't have the power to regulate your decision not to buy health care. He was correct there. The, the, the place where he got a little bit off – track in my opinion is when he said that 
though Congress does not have the power to regulate this thing, it is constitutional as a tax because all Congress wanted to do was raise revenue. They weren't trying to punish your decision not to buy health care. And that just flies against common sense. Number one, because so many times in the health care law, it says it's a penalty. And number two, don't you feel like you're being punished if you don't buy health care and you have to pay this, this fine in your tax return? Don't right. you feel like you're being punished for not? Of course and, and you, you are. are going to be punished. I mean, and you are going to be punished. They're going to so take how, a couple of grand out of everyone's pocket if they don't pay for this uh, insurance. You know, it's 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 something that uh, it's unprecedented. In other words, when people file their tax returns, who are you know have jobs or who are self-employed, you you know we and who have withholding, you know you get used to getting a couple of grand back, you know, from the government as a rebate, and that's going to go away. Because they're going to take that in the form of Obama payment. Yeah. So uh, it's just uh, it's unprecedented. It it and it provides a very broad precedent for Congress. Um, you know, it's really uh, troubling. And, and I mean, uh, Albert, do you think this can be can or do you think it will be challenged? Uh, you well, the Supreme Court decisions are final unless um, you amend the Constitution or, of course, unless Congress uh, changes the law. So, you know, there's nothing you can do. You can't appeal a Supreme Court decision. Now, a subsequent Supreme Court can reverse this decision, but those are your alternatives. You either amend the Constitution, you change the law, or the Supreme Court reverses itself. That's it. Well, I think that probably the um, the most practical approach to this is going to be changing the law, but that's going to take a, a um, not necessarily a Republican majority in both houses, but at least a, uh, a conservative majority, whether it be Republicans or Democrats, and that the only way they're going to do that is if people get up in arms. And that's not going to happen because of the way they fixed it. They did it know, like they phased it in. I don't think there's any law that's ever been written in such a way that it doesn't immediately take effect. There's something very sinister about that. You know, you know I mean, when you. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. You know the strange thing here? I think if you do a poll of the country. A lot of people, a big percentage, will think that there is now some kind of national health care program, that there's some kind of federal government-funded health care, but there's not. This law does not provide health insurance for people. It provides a bill to people. It provides a mandate. It tells you buy insurance or pay money. It doesn't provide – so it's not like anybody's going to get some kind of national health care insurance card they can stick in their wallet and go to the doctor and say, here you go, put it on Obamacare. You, you're not – this law doesn't provide health insurance. It provides a bill, and I, don't, I think there's a lot of people who don't understand that. They're, don't you think? Yes, I do. And um, I, you know, in a sense, it's part of this sort of overall conditioning that's taking place that we just get used to these sort of um, – I don't know these sort of conventions. You know, is there a, is there a, a legal precedent to Congress passing laws that do take effect years after they're passed? Because that seems to me to be pretty unusual. And I wonder what the constitutional, if there's ever been a constitutional question around that. Um, you know, that's that's been done before, and I can't think of a specific example off the top of my head. But um, sometimes, I mean, it seems you to can... me that when if Congress passes a law. I mean, I think that the conventional wisdom is that it should go into effect immediately because that way the populace, the, the, the congressmen that voted for the law that, and that the people that put them into Congress to do that will feel the effects of that law and will be able to uh, act accordingly. You know, it's sort of like what um, 
what 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 uh, Calvin Coolidge's Attorney General uh, Harry Doherty once said that the best way to get rid of a, a bad law is to enforce it. <laughs> <laughs> and and I think line. that if Congress, yeah, I mean, if Congress passes a law and it happens right then and there, then we'll we'll know whether or not it's going to be good. And that's why they did this. It is very undemocratic and sinister, in my opinion. To pass a law that gradually, you know, over the years, it's like it's like the hot water dropping into a petri dish with the frog. You know, they they keep uh, the water, the temperature keeps going up a little bit, and the frog doesn't notice it because it's going up so gradually. Until one day, the frog wakes up and realizes that he's boiling, but it's too late because his legs have been paralyzed by the water. Yeah, I, I, Congress would probably argue that um, the law does so much, and it affects such a large part of our economy. That we needed to ease it in gradually. We needed no, that's to give nonsense. Yeah, they I mean, were Congress. Uh, you know, it, it should either, you know, it, ease it in gradually or not. It is going to affect such a large part of the economy, and let's have at it. You know, right. it's, it's just uh, I'm really troubled by that. They would probably argue that uh, you know part of this law creates these health benefit exchanges that are supposed to be run by the states, and that you know we want to yeah, give they the could, t- they could do they could do it as they go. Right. You know, they they could implement those things, you know, and and still and just once they're implemented, the thing goes into action. You know, it, it doesn't mean that they can actually put in a clause that says we're not going to do this until this happens. I mean, it's just just a casual observation. I mean, there's something about it that is fundamentally dishonest. No, I, I know what you mean, and I, I mean that you know the constitutional analysis is that it's it's unprecedented and it gives Congress a lot of power now, yeah. um, but the 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 practical uh, there there are practical issues too. I mean, does it does it does it really provide health care insurance for anybody? Is it really going to reduce costs? I don't know. You know, I I always in my my personal opinion is we need to boost the economy. You know, we need more middle class jobs. We need higher incomes, and that way people you know either have an employer who voluntarily provides health insurance or they can afford to buy it their own. I, I just don't. From an economic standpoint, you know, I'm a small business owner, and I, you know, I'm not an economic genius, but I just I have a basic feel for revenue and expenses, and I just I get a little scared when I look at a 16 trillion dollar deficit, and and you know, more and more people whose incomes are stagnating or decreasing, more and more unemployment, and and yeah. more and more, you know. I just I, half doesn't the math doesn't add up to me. I'd rather see more people have middle class jobs with middle class incomes, with employers that either provide insurance or they have enough money in their pocket after rent, food, and everything that, to where they can buy insurance. I just well, think that's Albert, a better you know, you're, just, you're, you're getting into the central theme, of course, of this election uh, as being presented by Mitt Romney, and uh, I hope people hear it. I'm not suggesting who you're voting for. I know you're neutral. But um, that's, yeah, that's the argument being made. The price, the price of hamburger, as a former governor, as former Massachusetts Governor Sargent once said when they asked why he lost his election, it's the price of hamburger. Yeah. Anyways, Albert Navarro, uh, where can people get your excellent book, Elements of Constitutional Law? Uh, it's, it's up on Amazon.com. Uh, it's available in paperback and also um, ebook. I think the ebook is only three or four bucks or something like that if you want to download it. Great. Well, Albert, thanks so much for joining My so pleasure, again, Mr. Morris. Great, All right, great take talking care. with you. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, that kind of wraps things up for this afternoon. I shall return, God willing, Monday at noon p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You're listening to Chuck Morse Speaks. 
check out my blog site and my new blog, What Mitt Romney Can Learn from Richard Nixon. I want to thank you all for listening, and have a very nice weekend, everybody.